Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my dear friend, Reem Asil. Reem is an award-winning Palestinian and Syrian chef and speaker based in Oakland, California, working at the intersection of food, community, and social justice. Reem uses Arab hospitality to build strong and resilient community, something that she's been doing for nearly 20 years through her work in the nonprofit sector and as a community organizer. In everything Reem does in her actions and deeds, as I've known her for almost a decade, shows a commitment to a more socially and economically just world. One of the things that we talk about is the ways in which hospitality has really changed, particularly during COVID. The ways in which that has made life incredibly difficult for restaurant operators, and in some cases, all right, in many cases, keep it real, made it a very suboptimal experience for diners. And so we talk a little bit about what it means to be an ideologically driven, community-driven restaurant operator post-pandemic. And I think what the pandemic has helped us understand is that even if prices have risen and service has declined and restaurants have closed, we still see full restaurants. I see full restaurants everywhere I go, which is an indication to me how much restaurants mean, but it is getting harder to operate. And so how much more can diners and our zeal and enthusiasm for what restaurants provide be enough to carry the day for those restaurants that are living on the margin? What does it mean now to operate when staying in business is harder than ever? Reem is the right one to speak to about it. So without further ado, here is Reem Asil on The Stephen Satterfield Show. I think I know what you're opening without having seen the bottle yet. I just saw the color of it and I think I know what it is. No. Can I guess? Sure. I think you have a Copain Rosé. No, but it's close. This is a very, very small family. Oh, cool. I don't know this one. A Pinot Noir Oh from Santa Cruz. Yum. Yeah, it's from this family vineyards in Pescadero. Oh, beautiful. They have this like amazing farm called Harley Goat Farm. Okay. And they are in breeding season. So it's just like amazing, all these baby goats. But this vineyard was born out of that farm. 
Yeah, well, it's very small. So I was like, something tells me I really I'm like I'm salivating over this wine. Something tells me it's delicious. I can just look at it. Yeah, that's crazy. What do you look for in a rosé? That color. That color. That <laughs> I kind of like. I, I really am very fond of uh, Santa Cruz yeah. mountain wines in general. Santa Cruz wines, they have really good Cabernet there. Really good, but very small amounts of Pinot Noir. Yeah. Excellent versions of Chardonnay. Yeah. I barely see Pinot. Yeah, in Santa Cruz, right? Yeah, and now thinking of like a rosé of Pinot. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, shout out to you and all those little baby goats. I'm drinking a mezcal. Uh-huh. This is from Oaxaca. From Maestra Paula Aquino, a Biquish. A Biquish. So this is from my homies at Neta. Let me see the bottle. Oh, cool. Let's cheers. Let's cheers. <laughs> Saha, as we say in Arabic. Saha. Oh, yeah, that's delicious. Mm. Woo, any excuse. All right, so let's talk. The last time I talked to you formally on a podcast... You were, I believe, newly a mom, and we were before COVID. Yeah. Right? Like, literally days before COVID. We might have been in it. Yeah. just didn't know. Yeah. I think it was really like that, because you had just opened a brand new restaurant, and then, boom, someone turned the lights off. And now we blink. It's been about three years, almost exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How we know the world has changed. That's an old story. I'm curious how your life has changed over the last three, four years since we chatted. Where do I start? I mean, I think in many ways, I'm going back to the roots of what I always wanted to be and do. So, in a way, I think these last three years, although painful, afforded me the time <laughs> to to do that deeper, harder work that I couldn't do because I was, whether it was intentionally or voluntarily or involuntarily, really busy, just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. I now have a restaurant, a yes. commissary kitchen. Um, we opened a kiosk in the Ferry Building, which is an iconic tourist attraction (laughs) in the Bay Area. We just signed a lease on a flagship back in the heart of downtown Oakland. So in many ways, it's crazy to think three years ago, like I was on a fast track to this and that three-year break allowed me to do it in a way that I wanted to do it. But also it just seems like yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have done a remarkable amount in a short amount of time. You didn't even mention the fact that you casually had a cookbook in there too. Yeah. And it's true, as you just said, you were kind of tracking for this destiny for yourself. You are an ambitious person, accomplished person. So I guess on the one hand, it really shouldn't come as a surprise that you landed where you did. You find a way, but you kind of alluded to even the three years is a short amount of time that that pace for you slowed down. So I'm curious how you have managed to both significantly grow your restaurant empire and also, though, grow in a way that feels more aligned with the speed of growth that you desired for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that three years ago, 
I was looking more external to how to grow. And I think that in the last three years, it's it's not that we didn't grow. We just grew deeper and more mm-hmm. internally, which I think is the most important part of growing. In the organizer's worldview, you know, we used to talk about a good organizer grows deep and grows wide, right? You build your base, and but also you build your leadership. And I'm a really good base builder. I love meeting new people. I love rallying people around a cause. And I felt that that was really meaningful work. And in many ways, I still do that. But I think that it was really time for me to build deep because I knew that I myself alone couldn't carry this work. You know, I wanted to, I want to leave a legacy for Reams. And I know that I'm only one person. And so to be able to stop, take a moment, take stock of who are the people around me who helped me build Reams and then invest internally in their needs and wants. So that was great. And I think as a result of that allowed me also to draw some boundaries as a as a woman of color who felt really pressured to have all the answers and do all the things to take care of myself. So to go through that transition, but then also to open myself to opportunities that I never knew that I felt like I was too small to have, you know, mm. I think it was a growth an investment, not just in my employees to really have the sustainable growth for Reams, but also an investment in myself, because I think creatively, I had a lot to give to the world, but I was just so burnt out and worn out by my life circumstances and by my business, quite frankly. So, yeah. What I want to talk about is something more macro. And that is something you've spent a lot of time thinking about. And in fact, you have been a thought leader, I'm going to say, a canary in the coal mine about the fragility of the restaurant and hospitality sector, the restaurant sector in particular, talking about the fragility of the labor force, the ways in which folks had been overextended, underappreciated, and really at the brink for a long time, even before COVID. And as we know, COVID became the event that kind of not only broke the labor force in our sector, but many sectors. I, as a regular diner, have clearly observed a big shift in the experience. I always leave restaurants now feeling like, damn, it must be so hard to own a restaurant right now. (laughs) I can't imagine owning a restaurant right now. That's like a refrain every time I leave. So tell us, as a prescient thinker (laughs) in the world of restaurants, what's it been like for you and what the hell is going on with the restaurant industry right now? (laughs) Well, I think in some ways things have changed, but in many ways, unfortunately, things have not changed fast enough. (laughs) And then you have the external circumstance of a world recovering from a global pandemic and a recession and all these things that none of us really have control over. So now we're operating in the midst of a recession where we have to not only deal with these added costs of supply, you know, all of these things, but then also educate our consumer even more about why they need to see themselves as investors if they want to keep their restaurants in their neighborhood rather Mm. than just customers. We were already kind of doing that before the pandemic. You know, our ethos has always been like, you're our partners in all of this. If you want reams in your neighborhood, you got to invest in it. 
I think we were doing it more sheepishly because we were dealing with just the added layer of being an Arab restaurant. So the perception of our food as as not worthy of that cost. So I think that's been the hardest part for us. But I think on the flip side of that, I do think that we've been able to have that conversation more explicitly. <laughs> People, because people saw, they witnessed firsthand their before their very eyes, you know, restaurants falling by the wayside. I mean, we lost. I can't remember the the figure, but it's it was something like a hundred and fifteen thousand restaurants <laughs> um, closed within that two year. I mean, that's crazy. We try to conjure up that, you know, like I think people saw firsthand what happens when you don't invest. So you feel like there was a a kind of like deepening relationship between you and your customers. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember like, I think two days before the shutdown, I was on a podcast and I was like, just let it all die. <laughs> I literally, I swear to God. like, <laughs> and, again, and I was like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I seem to like really recall that. Yeah. And, and it did. And in many ways, the yeah. parts of the restaurant industry that we didn't really love died with it. I mean, we talk about yeah. fine dining, talk about fine dining like that. On one hand, the people who didn't have the foresight because they always had unlimited capital didn't know what to do in the midst of the pandemic. So they, they shut down. Whereas the people like me who didn't, could not afford to shut down, we figured it out and we survived. So in a way, that was a survival of the fittest and the most creative and the people who knew how to pivot the most, I guess. And and the kind of old guard that just were not good at being creative just kind of died with it. Unless they got the um, PPP PPP money, money. right? But those executives got rich. I don't think that people are sustaining fine dining in the same way because the world has changed. Right. Let's unpack that more. Yeah. So, and I, I agree with you, by the way, like on the fine dining side, I'm sure that the main frustration is still the same frustration that you're experiencing, that many restaurateurs and operators in the sector are experiencing. They just can't find enough people to work. And I think it's been even more exacerbated with the fine dining stuff, because it's like it had gotten down to like tweezer culture, you know, where you have interns or not very well paid entry level cooks who are doing really intricate, mundane things in the kitchen, I guess in the name of art, in the name of gastronomy. Mm-hmm. But that's not feasible anymore, right? But I do feel like, I mean, a bunch of people got richer during the pandemic. Yeah. And I feel like I don't trust it. Mm -hmm. And this is coming from the perspective of a paranoid black man, Mm -hmm. first of all, who just has observed and read enough to know that the black, the backlash, uh, I I said blacklash, but it's that too. The backlash is always on the way. It seems to me, you know, Yes, the labor problem is a problem for all of us or or for the industry at large, but I do feel scared of Mm -hmm. how the old guard Mm -hmm. will come back like Mm -hmm. a zombie and try to reassert their power. Yeah. I mean, they're a microcosm of capitalism, right? So- Right. That's yeah. how it works, right? You you figure out a way to adjust. And I was hoping that during this time we were building our resilience, right? And maybe we are. It's just slower than the amount of 
money that people can pump. But I think in the long run there, that model is not sustainable from like a just human human race perspective. But what is it going to take for us to build our resilience is resources, is money. The answer is localizing our sh- The answer is scaling, is replicating. Like we're still trying to figure out those answers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a different generation, a generation that I appreciate that it's like, we're not going to take this kind of, you know? yeah, but it's like of those of us in this kind of middle generation who are trying to do something different, how do we partner and understand each other of like, how do we get, we all have the same goal, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I, you're not wrong to be paranoid. I'm always like, yeah, the like real estate got bought up by the chains, right? Because you had all of these vacated restaurants um, during the, the pandemic and at least for me as a business owner in my small corner of the world, how do we reoccupy spaces? And that's what right. we're trying to do at Reams. We're trying to reoccupy spaces in specific areas. And then we're trying to figure out a model that other restaurateurs can follow so we can replicate because we can't scale Reams, you know, like it's not meant to be scaled. It's meant, like I said, to, to build deep and to build a foundation So that generationally people can pass on the torch (laughs) and build wealth for those after. It's just not going to be as fast as some of these folks. So I think at the policy level, how do we figure out how to mitigate the harm that these fine dining establishments have done, reparate, you know, bring those resources and put them into the models that are building resilience in our community. Yeah. And are you like talking to your restaurant tour colleagues, cohorts, are y'all in conversation about what building that future looks like? And if so, is there alignment? Like, are y'all kind of like, yeah, we got to scale, but not scale independently, kind of scale ideologically, scale the model more so? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I could say uh, local level, you know, Reams is part of multiple coalitions of business owners, restaurateurs. We all kind of align on our vision and values for environmental sustainability, quality of life and sustainability, and feeding feeding nourishing food to as many people as possible. So we align on those mm-hmm. things. And so we share resources, but I think that we all kind of understand that the problems that we're trying to tackle are structural. And that while we're building our models internally, we need to be doing some of this more broader systems change that is really not on us as business owners to do. That's on our elected officials. And so could we leverage our power? Again, I like the scaling of ideology. I I do think that we have some political power to push our elected officials to reallocate resources from the bad players and reward and subsidize the work of the good players because capitalism isn't the answer. We're never going to be profitable and sustainable just by the forces of capitalism, so to speak. You know, what I'm really pushing for is a more socialist model. I was wondering about the structure of your business. Yeah. How is your business set up? And like, sort of, how do you talk about your business with respect to the way that it's set up? Yeah, so... I come out of the co-op movement. So I'll just say that like I've been in flat structures. And while I think the co-op model, like the more flat structure of a co-op model might work in a smaller organization or a place uh, where the culture is more collective already, 
in the context of the U.S., what I've seen is that when you don't have formal hierarchy, informal hierarchy begins to exist in those spheres. Mm-hmm. And that usually falls along the lines of race, gender, and class, right? Those who in, have been afforded in society forms of leadership or power just tend to take up those vacuums and those who have internalized that they don't have power fall into line. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I didn't want to replicate that at Reams. We haven't corrected for that. So mm-hmm. we have to correct for that in forms of hierarchy. <laughs> we have equitable systems that really mm-hmm. take equity into account in the way that we structure management. That said, Reams, the kind of ethos or, or, or the way that we do things is in the form of participatory management. Mm-hmm. So my kitchens, for instance, everybody has a role to play, but nobody is more important than another. Mm-hmm. But like you are accountable. If you are the kitchen manager, you are accountable for your ordering <laughs> and your scheduling. Like that doesn't change, right? Does it mean that you're the only one who has the final say over everything? No, there's a participatory way that we manage that involves the voice of everybody. So that's always kind of been the case, at least informally. Everybody is cross-trained. Even if you're primarily a dishwasher, you can learn how to be a prep cook. That that job is not more important than the dishwasher. It's not like you're moving mm-hmm. up the ranks, so to speak. You just have different responsibilities. Mm-hmm. But the more responsibilities you have, the more recognition and pay you get, right? That That's, that's very clear. I wanted to formalize worker ownership. It's one thing to be like, we're all in this together. And you know, restaurants do that all the time. We're all family. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's nice. But like, unless you give people material stake in the change, they're not going to invest in it the same way. Right. Our approach to things are always, has always been about let them build it with you. You know, our very first brick and mortar was a Kickstarter campaign that was fundraised by the community. They'll be that much more invested if they were part of the fight. (laughs) They'll have skin in the game, so to speak. So we changed kind of our approach to worker ownership. And we said, we're going to be a worker owned space, but like we need to build with our employees to get there. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we are going to structure, and we're not a co-op yet formally, is to create another entity that is the co-op that is governed by the employees. And that would be a form of an LLC that we thought was important to do it as an LLC and not a corporation because we have a lot of undocumented folks and that was the thing that was going to protect them the most. Hmm. And there would be a, what would be called a representative model. So that's kind of the democratic way of doing things, which would be representative of the body of employees. And we would agree on what are the things that need to be decided on a larger level. But operationally, people would be autonomous to create, you know, whether you're in the restaurant. So we decide on kind of what is a vote and then what do managers have the power to do? What, who should be consulted, that kind of thing. And financially, what it looks like is that I basically am selling all of my shares to this co-op. The co-op will 100% with community investors own reams. And therefore, whatever profit that we make gets distributed to the employees first. So that's that's what it looks like on a financial level. It sounds like a lot of time with the legal team. Yes, a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of legalities. And what I would say is if you want to be worker owned, just do it from the beginning because transition, legal transitions are hard. I can see that. Yeah. I'm curious, with your very colorful, illustrious background as an organizer, community activist, and now as not just a restaurateur, but a business owner and a business owner 
at a time where business is just really complicated and hard. You've already alluded to some of those challenges, especially in your sector. Mm-hmm. Have you, over the last few years in particular, I'm curious, ever just looked up and found yourself being like, I wonder what little Reem or like younger Reem <laughs> would say, <laughs> you know, about where I am and just like how I'm moving and what I'm thinking, like, How are you reconciling where you've come from with where you are now? Mm -hmm. You got to the deep, Mike. (laughs) Curious, curious. Yeah, existential questions. I mean, I think the little, uh, the the younger, less traumatized dream, let's put like pre-traumatized, because there was like two phases of younger dream. There's like Mm -hmm. the pre-trauma dream that was like, be a star and go out there and speak your truth. You know, I was, I was that, that kid, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but like, I think the Reem, the young Reem that was lived in a white suburb as an ambiguously Brown person who didn't really understand what racism looked like. She certainly understood what it felt like, but didn't know (laughs) might be like, wow, how did you get here? That's the imposter syndrome. I think, I think I had to overcome a lot to realize, and I'm still trying to realize what my potential is, but there was always an affinity for something's not right, something's not just. So yeah, I think that she would be proud, (laughs) hopefully. I think she would be too. Yeah, but I, yeah, I think certainly I have my days where it doesn't feel like enough, right? I guess that's what is the crazy serial entrepreneurial organizer part of myself to do more. Yeah. Yeah, And it, it sounds like, though, with your wisdom and healing, you are more intentional about going at a pace that allows you to, to take care of myself, hopefully take care yeah. of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, when I moved from being organizer to entrepreneur, there was this kind of thinking that there are parts of us that motivate to fight against what's unjust, but there's a lot of like amnesia we have about what is just, right? And Reams was really part of that journey to figure out what feels good, what feels like it holds up the dignity of everyone, including myself as the creator. And I'm still on that journey. I don't think we've figured all of that out, but it's that side of myself that's like, I want to create. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to fight, but you have to create that sort of dual reality and kind of revolutionary thought we talk about. You have to create these dual systems, right? Because then we just replicate what we are fighting against when we get that's the power. Right. Yeah. And so I think these days I'm appreciating my body, like the, the thing that houses these great ideas <laughs> that like, oh, I got to take care of that too, that spirit, because if you don't have me, I don't have my business, right? Especially for leaders, for visible people, for people who are pillars in in their community. Sounds cheesy, but it's really true. You you really, when you have folks depending on you like that, you really got to take care of yourself. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch gears to wrap it up here. I was instructed by Celine mm-hmm. to talk to you about the best thing that you've eaten this week. The best thing I've eaten this week. You want me to get real specific? Yeah, sure. Dungeness crab two ways at Joe's Modern Thai <laughs> in Oakland, California. They like it's amazing. They like uh, it's like the Dungeness 
the shell itself is in this curry with crab legs and then the insides are cooked with like a fried rice, like a Dungeness crab fried rice. Oh my it's God. I'm devastated. Right now. <laughs> I'll try to eat well. That's part of taking the body, taking care of the house that, you know, the house of the spirit. <laughs> I miss Dungeness crab so bad. Yeah. R.I.P. Dungeness crab in my day-to-day life in crab season. <laughs> wow. I don't even know what I was about to say. I have totally lost You're salvated. the plot because <laughs> I'm thinking about how much I miss Dungeness crab. Yeah. I mean, you got to eat well. You're running a whole Woodstone empire. You got to eat well. Well, I'm going to dream about Dungeness crab and crab and rice especially is that's the one. That's the Ooh. one. Oof, that's like the ultimate combo. Ultimate. But I appreciate you making time. Very excited about our horizon together yes. with home talent. Yeah. And all the ways that we'll get to work together on that new platform and with lots of new partners. Yeah, I'm really excited to spread the gospel of Arab hospitality through home. I think that, that everybody should have access to that. Okay, my dear. Thank you for coming on to the show. We'll catch up soon. For sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kolachuk, editor Ilgen Kordogan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 